Galatians chapter 4. Let me give you a little rewind on where we've been. This entire letter, six chapters, is a defense for truth. Right? It's Paul's uh, appeal to the Galatian church, first of all, that he loves them, and that this whole law plus grace thing don't equal salvation. So he's confronting that issue. There's some men that came from uh, Jerusalem who are suggesting that Jesus wasn't enough. Grace alone is an absurd thought, so we got to add a little bit of law, a little bit of circumcision, and Jesus, and what you'll get is something that, that merits God's attention. And so Paul is confronting that and confronting these Judaizers and this church who's wandering a little bit. And that's the whole point of the letter. From chapter 1 to chapter 6 is, is basically to confront and encourage this church that God's grace is good enough, big enough, great enough to capture every sinner who ever lived. So that's the, that's the theme that we're in. That's why we've entitled this series Fighting for Grace because grace doesn't come naturally, not to people, not to sinners. It doesn't stay natural even to saints. We have a tendency to want to trade it out for, for law all the time. And so un, just kind of similar to the church, in Galatia, we're going to learn some stuff about ourselves today. But I've kind of, for whatever reason, this happens to be the longest section of, of Scripture that we're dealing with in, this, in our study together, and it's the most difficult. So I'm assuming Tom did this on purpose um, <laughs> to not be here today, but it is, it is uh, quite a few uh, sections of Scripture for us. There's from verse 8 all the way to 31, all the way through the chapter 4, we're dealing with three little sections that are basically, and I'm kind of put it in a small outline so you can figure this out, three appeals. The appeal to experience, the appeal of the heart, and the appeal of Scriptures. Again, Paul is pressing these people and dealing with the Judaizers to see grace alone is what we defend, and so he appeals to their own life and experience. He appeals to the relationship and the, and the love that he has for them, and then finally with the Scriptures. The first one is the appeal from experience. Let's read it together, starting in verse 8 through verse 11. Paul says this, Formerly, when you did not know God... You were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. Here's what Paul's saying, verse, verse 8 right off the bat. He's asking them to remember um, when they didn't know Christ. And just by the way, I think that's a great exercise for every Christian because time and the flesh and the adversary and all the things pushing against Jesus in us wants to somehow change the rules. So just remember, okay, if you're a Christian in here, remember when it was that God found you? Do you remember the unbelievable good news of grace? Do you remember that somehow your sins could be forgiven and forgotten? that you would never be measured by those things ever again, that no one can snatch you from the loving, gracious hand of God, never, ever? Do you remember that? Remember how mind-blowing that was? Remember how it fueled your worship and your care for other people and it changed you? But do you also see yourself after 10, 15, 20, 25 years of going, yeah, I got it. Next. It's not good, right? And so here's a, here's a group of people clearly that don't have 20 years in it, they have a short period of time, and, and Paul is confronting them just to say, remember, remember when you didn't know Christ? 
And these Galatians people, these Gentile people, had serious baggage, religious baggage in their background. These people were used to gods and goddesses. They, they would worship deities from ancient Greece. They, would, they had a, a temple to Zeus in Lystra. People belonged to the Roman imperial cult. There was all sorts of gods, plural, anything goes, try whatever you can to deal with your longings and your needs and your lacks, right? Religion was your answer. And they had climbed that tree and there wasn't anything there. And they remember that. I'm certain they remember it when Paul brings it up. Don't you remember where you were? When you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods, right? That's what they had to remember. Idols. No different than any man, to be honest with you. We all struggle with that. It doesn't mean that we have to bow to Zeus or anything else like that, but whatever version of fixing our own problems apart from Jesus, every sinner has that in their life, right? Every sinner does. And so Paul just implores them, guys, listen, if you're, just, if you're not getting how great and free this relationship with Jesus is, let me remind you what it was like when you were working for something when you were striving to be cared for and striving to matter and striving to be good enough, only to find out you couldn't be good enough. That's why you received it with such joy, right? Because you found freedom in Christ. Remember where you were. He says this in verse 9. Look at it. But now you know God, or rather you're known by God. Isn't that interesting? That, that word has the idea of, of intimacy and personal knowledge. Paul's saying, listen, you know him. Better said, God knew you, and then you know him. Like it's true for every sinner, right? It is, it is love of God that opens up our eyes and our ears. What does what John say in 1 John? And this is love. Not that we loved him, but he first loved us, right? And gave us his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That is the truth. Blind, dead, stubborn, unresponsive, religious people trying to climb the ladder of self-effort to please this God, whoever it is, who discover when Jesus comes and he gives grace and freedom, when God opens our eyes to see, striving won't work. It didn't work. But grace does, and it's free. Take it by faith. So again, Paul saying, listen, you, you were working. You had this intimate knowledge of God and his grace. You were known by God. And then he asked this question. He, he asked this question in the end of verse 9. How is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? If you have the Bible we gave you, the ESV, or maybe it's the New American Standard, the word there, instead of miserable, is worthless. Either way, probably a better translation for both those words are powerless and bankrupt. I mean, the point that Paul is trying to make, he is flabbergasted that they would choose a powerless, use it loosely, gospel, Right? Your man-made effort doesn't bridge the huge chasm that exists between sinner and holy God, does it? It doesn't. There's nothing you can do. The Bible says we all fall what? So as, as good as we can possibly be, and as much as we could try to make an assessment of people all around the world at any situation, everyone, no matter who they are, no matter how great they are, drop before holy can't get there. You can't get there. It is powerless. It can't raise life. It, it can't bring joy. It can't, it can't change hearts. There is no resurrection in religion, right? So Paul is just asking a simple question that has an obvious answer, right? Why are you going back to a powerless thought? It won't do anything. 
It might be some argument if it could accomplish something, at least something, but it has no power for anything. Not only that, it's bankrupt. There's no inheritance in it. There's no kingdom in it. There's no Jesus in it. There's no inheritance, anything, nothing. There's no result of following this religion. When you add a whole bunch of law, what do you get? Prison. You get nothing. Absolutely nothing. So Paul's just making a really good argument with a really good conclusion. It's powerless. It's bankrupt. It can do nothing. Verse 10. He asks this question. Are you observing special days and months and seasons and years? His point is, are you going to really start all over again? Isn't that where you were? Weren't you working your man-made version of pleasing whatever God you invented only to now trade it in for a Jewish version? Like now, you, instead of following Zeus and these imperial cults and all sorts of things, now you're picking seasons and dates like the Pharisees, new moons, festivals, Passovers, tabernacle. You're just changing it out for a different one. And I'll bet you this was massively offensive to those Judaizers who were there saying our, our addition to Jesus alone was essential for salvation. And Paul is saying, no, it's not. In fact, it's no different than pagan cults. Adding anything to grace alone, by Christ alone, through faith alone, is a cult. It's not real. It's not real. In verse 11, I love this statement because I can relate to it a lot. He says, I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. Every person who's a Christian who's taken the chance to pour into somebody else knows what this feels like. Everybody. Now, you know, the Great Commission, when Jesus left, he said, church, here's what I want you to do. Make disciples. You make little Jesus out of everybody you meet. Just do it. So we're all engaged in making disciples, and everybody who does knows the, the cost, the weight, the hurt, and the failure of somebody who is tripping. Just letting go. They used to confess, they don't confess. They used to love and worship and serve, they don't. Doesn't it hurt? Doesn't it hurt? I bet it does. I feel, I feel like that sometimes when you pour your heart, soul, mind, and strength into somebody only to watch them wander off. You know, the, I like these TV shows they have every once in a while. Where are they now shows? You know what I'm saying? Like these old, well, like, well, Davy Jones died this, this week, right? So all of the ladies my age are weeping somewhere. Because the, the original heartthrob is dead. But either way, you know, you do a monkey's where they are, where are they now, or the whatever, pick your deal. Um, I don't like to do this with Christians because it makes me sad. Like, we were talking in the back before you guys got here with the worship team, and they were talking about Facebook. I am not a Facebook user, and God willing, I will never be. Um, just a conviction. Um, I'm not judging you. It's cool. I couldn't, I couldn't do all that work. But it, it really would bum me out. I hear stories every once in a while of somebody I knew 10 years ago who I used to be arm in arm in ministry with. And they're not there anymore. And it kills me. I just don't want to know. I just want to bury my head in the sand and just keep plowing with who I know because it hurts really bad. Paul is looking at these Galatians going, I was with you guys. I care. I was shoulder to shoulder. I was in the trenches, grace alone in this pagan world. And you embraced it. You loved it. And now... You're trading it in. It had to tear his heart out. And Paul is not suggesting that what God started, he wouldn't finish. He's not suggesting that somehow they could come to Jesus and let it go and not be in Jesus. He's just having a human reaction to this experience like, wait a minute, wait a minute. All the travel, all the illness, all the loneliness, all the struggles, all the persecutions, all this time together. Did I, did I waste my time? Right? Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt that way? 
Every, everybody who really cares and puts, puts life on life, you're going to feel this way sometimes. And the cynicism and the failure rate is going to want you to quit. You can't quit. You're going to see Paul not quitting too. He's just expressing. And it's okay to express every once in a while. Right, your fear of engagement, but that's Paul's heart. So he starts with this first appeal. There's liars in the church trying to sell that there's something more than Jesus that you need. He confronts it and says, don't you remember where you were, what you found, who you are? This is, this is bothering me. I'm afraid that I've wasted all this time and with you, and that's his, that's his first appeal. There's a second appeal that Paul makes, and it's from verses 12 through verse 20, and it's the appeal from the heart. Paul is not preaching anymore. Uh, the whole letter we've seen so far is doctrine and confrontation. Paul is using serious bullets from his doctrine gun to win the argument against the Judaizers that it's grace alone. He ain't preaching anymore. He's simply telling you how he feels. He's telling these Galatians. He's letting them in on his heart. So, so far in this letter, we've seen Paul pronounce anathema. He's damning these Judaizers to hell for, uh, for their adding to Jesus. He's called the Galatian people, you dear idiots. He's said that a time or two. He's been righteously angry. He's been aggressive and confrontational. And remember, I try to give you a picture of what this guy looks like. I called him Mike Ditka of the Bible. He's this guy that means what he says and says what he means and defends it and spits and all that sorts of stuff. Well, we're going to have a change of pace here. So I'm going to use another football analogy, and then ladies, I'll get you caught up. Here we're, gonna, we're about to see the Dick Vermeil. Of, of, of Paul. Paul. Dick Vermeule was a guy who'd cry at anything. Catch a touchdown, he'd cry. You know, have a team meeting, he'd cry. He'd cry all the time. Well, that's what Paul's doing right now. He's becoming emotional about, about his love for the Galatians people, his reflection on how they cared for him, and, and it's just a real personal ploy on his part. He has uh, some of the strongest, in fact, the strongest words of personal sentiment than any other letter he's ever written, right here. In fact, this, this phrase in verse 19, my dear children, isn't written anywhere else in Scripture. It's the most affectionate thing Paul has ever said that we know of written. So he's not teaching right now. He's just, he's just pouring out his heart. And here's what he begins to say in verse 12. I plead with you, brothers, become like me, for I became like you. You have done me no wrong. Paul is begging them um, to live free from the law. He, he's trying to letting them see how this thing switched around. Remember, Paul was a Pharisee. If someone thought that they could be good enough and work enough and be religious enough to merit God's affections, Paul was working for it. Paul finds grace. He tells a bunch of people, listen, you people who are free, you Gentile people, you're still free. They now pick up the law, and Paul is free. He's just simply saying, to them, I wish you could be like me now because I became like you. You were free from the law. Now you're picking it up. I don't get it. Be like me now. Verse 13, he remembers the relationship, the personal side. Let me read this. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. Even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. What has happened to all our joy? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Paul is simply stating um, how he feels about these people. Some, many of the writers suggest that Paul's condition for even staying there and preaching the gospel in the first place was some kind of grotesque, disfiguring illness. Uh, something that was 
bad enough to have some people be normally just kind of turned off by. So malaria, some eye, people suggest some eye disease. Anyway, you could tell he was sick and it wasn't easy. And he's saying, listen, don't you remember how God just landed me here? I was not winsome. I was not good looking. I had a problem and you didn't turn on me. You did not treat me like that. You embraced me. In fact, and this is where some writers suggested it might have been his eyes, where Paul says, if you could, you would have torn out your own eyes and given them to me. Uh, that statement is just like, uh, in that culture, the most precious uh, object they had was their eyesight. So Paul is just saying, listen, the most important thing in your life you would have given to me. That's how close we were. That's how much you cared about me. That's how much you loved me. And you would have given them to me. That's how tight we were. But now, am I your enemy because I'm telling you the truth? So they didn't shun his illness. They re received him in, and now we got a broken relationship. Everything was good if he was telling them what they liked. As soon as he had to confront, they become enemies. Now tensions. Howard Hendricks is a was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, and he has a lot of great stuff to say. Um, a lot of good stuff on sheep and shepherd relationships. And he had this quote, and I think it's awesome. He he warns he warns shepherds, be careful, sheep bite. And it's true. So it doesn't matter how much relationship they have or how much experience or history they have or how much they really loved each other. If you push hard enough, if you confront long enough, if you tell the truth that doesn't want to be heard long enough, stuff like this happens. The tension they received wasn't because what they had at the moment wasn't real. It was because now Paul is stepping up in their life and pushing it farther, right? So there's now this tension and Paul is expressing it. He mentions in verse 17, um, he warns the, the Galatian people about the Judaizers' motives. Look what it says. Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may be zealous for them. That word zealous is the idea of courting, like a guy courting a girl, right? So um, you know what that means. It means everything you got. It means trying to woo them. You woo them with dinner. You woo them with kindness. You woo them with words and cards and flowers, all the things that go away when you have them, right? But you woo them. You go hard after because you want them so bad for yourself. And that's exactly the word picture that Paul is saying. That's what these Judaizers are doing. They have no good intentions for you. All they're trying to do is win you for them. They want you like a pelt on the wall. They want you as credit. Their intentions in ministry are absolutely immoral. They want to do harm. And then he shares in verse 19 his feelings. Again, like I said before, this term, my dear children, is the most intimate thought he ever wrote that we have recorded. And I'm going to paraphrase, paraphrase verse 19 for us so that we can understand, uh, I think, what Paul's intentions are here. But he says, my dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. In essence, Paul is saying, my dear kids who refuse to be born... I'm going to hang in there until Christ is formed in you, <laughs> right? Wouldn't that, I, just met, I just met a young lady out here. I think she's pregnant with twins, right? She looks like she should have had a baby three years ago. <laughs> um, what, what if the news that you got when you were like nine months pregnant was, hey, it's going to be another year, <laughs> two? That's exactly what Paul has in his thinking. Like I've never had a baby um, I haven't, um, but I've been in the rooms of four. 
Um, it's not pleasant. Um, my wife and I did it the wrong way, the hard way. Um, I was not insured when we had Ben. And uh, so we were just paying out of pocket for everything. And I heard a whole bunch of rumors my first kid. I didn't know anything. And I'm like any, I, maybe, maybe, I'm assuming too much. I thought like any guy, I never planned it. Like I never thought, okay, now I'm ready to be a father. I'm ready for all the roles and responsibilities. I got my mind right. I'm ready to do this thing. This means this. I just thought it's inevitable. It's going to happen. Just let it go. And so that's how I experienced Ben. He, so um, we heard uh, from somebody that if you get to the hospital before midnight, that they charge you for the whole day before. Have you ever heard these? I, I think evil people <laughs> present these things. But, but I told Sue, we're not getting there early. Can't afford early. So we were living in Chicago. It was 30 below zero. I had a Jeep with a soft top, and my pregnant wife is sitting in the front seat, right? And uh, it is 10 o'clock. And so we sat in the Jeep for quite a while <laughs> until, the, until it struck midnight. And then we waddle in there, and they go, oh, no, no, that's not true. You'd have been fine. And so, but the problem... I created was this, right? She gets in there and they go, sweetie, there's nothing we can do for you. You just got to have this kid, you know? All those wonderful things they've invented like epidurals and I don't know, all the stuff, they make it not feel like childbirth. So we were in this section, all these birthing rooms and I could hear the other birthing rooms and I could hear the nurses and the doctors and it wasn't like my room at all. <laughs> I, sweetie, sweetie, wake up, You're, it's time to push. That's what I heard in the other rooms. You hear light little groans, little moans. I got a screaming banshee in this room <laughs> because I failed to deal with it properly, right? But, I, but just so you know, it was, it was childbirth um, naturally. And that's the illustration Paul is using about these people becoming like Christ. It comes with blood, sweat, and tears. It's hard work. It's uphill. It's painful it isn't something that's like every day a bunch of joy. Paul is just saying like it's like childbearing. It's just really, really hard. And it's a struggle. But he finishes verse 19 with whatever the situation is. Whatever it is, I'm committed until Christ is formed in you. There's the shepherd's heart. In spite of his frustrations, in spite of his heart being wounded by these people turning on him, he's committed to these people becoming like Christ. And so there's his personal appeal. One last appeal that Paul makes as he, kind of, he continues to confront this Jesus plus gospel is this appeal from the scriptures. We've seen this several times, but he keeps referring back to these written things of old scripture, the law, to make his point. And so he does that in verse 21 through 31, an appeal from scriptures. He uses a true story found in Genesis chapter 16, Genesis chapter 21. Don't, don't turn there. Feel free to write that down and go back and read that story. You'll get a better perspective of, of what's going on. Um, I'll try to give you the highlights so that you're caught up to the story. But these Judaizers, remember, were anchored in the law. And by the law, we're not talking about Ten Commandments, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. They all knew it. These Jewish men knew it, believed it, thought it, so they would illustrate from it. It was everything. So Paul says, okay, you want to use Abraham as your example of, of a Jesus plus gospel. Let's go back. Let's go back to that Old Testament stuff. Let's bring that law back in and let me win that argument too. So he does that here with uh, this example of Abraham. 
So let me give you the story kind of quickly. Abraham is a prosperous man living in the country of Ur. Um, God introduces himself to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want, you to, I want you to take your wife and I want you to go to this land that I'm going to give you, right? And he also promised, and we saw this a couple weeks ago, he promised Abraham that he would make him a great big family, like a huge family. A nation would come from him, out counting the stars, right? And that's, that's great and everything, but Abraham at this point is 75 years old and his wife is 65 years old. And we just know that that's, well, this is going to be a challenge. We may get on the schedule if this is going to happen, but they end up traveling to Canaan, the promised land. They, they arrive there and some 10 years pass with no kids. Sarah understands, she knows that the promise is there, so she takes matters into her own hands, and she suggests to Abraham, now who is 85 and she's 75, hey, we ought to make this happen. Why don't you take my slave, Hagar, you make her your wife, you have a child with her, and somehow we'll have this heritage, we'll have this lineage. And so Abraham agrees with that, and he takes her to be his wife, and they have a baby son named Ishmael. And just a side note, it's worth stopping here and making a so what point um, to our message, but personally, I can understand the anxiousness in 85-year-old Abraham and 75-year-old Sarah. Like, I'm not trying to be judgmental. I look at it and go, they don't have kids. I mean, in that culture, it's way bigger than our culture, Right? Got to have somebody to leave it to. So I totally, I totally understand from a human perspective what the tension might have felt like. But, um, but the theology was so wrong. Because in the bottom of that whole event was, maybe I could help God out. God made a promise. Maybe if we do our side and he does his side, maybe we'd come, right? And so... Well, let me ask you a question. What happens when we take that bad theology of helping God out? How does that work out for us? No, yeah, it makes things worse. It never goes well, and it didn't go well for them. And you can see as well if you read it, but in Genesis chapter 16, huge tension arises between Hagar, the servant woman, and, and Sarah. And it never, obviously, two wives, one man, we're going to have tension, right? So we got tension here, and some 14 years pass. Abraham's now 99 years old. His wife, Sarah, is 89 years old. Still no kid from them. They have Hagar, the slave, and they have the slave son, Ishmael, but they got nobody from themselves. And God shows back up and tells Sarah, I'm going to keep my promise. I'm going to give you a child. And she laughs, right? She can't believe it because it's absurd. Because we're, we're way past having this be confusing at all. It's not natural. It can't happen. Of course you would laugh. It can't happen. But God delivers, and a miracle happens. He takes two people beyond the childbearing years and gives them a child. The child's name is Isaac. Twelve months later, he shows up. So here we have Ishmael, slave son, right? That's Abraham and Hagar's son. He will always be a slave. His mother was a slave. There's nothing he can do about it. Now we have Isaac, who was born to Sarah. He's not a slave kid. He wasn't born of a slave mother. He's the free, rightful heir to Abraham's estate. And you can see, even just by a small like, a reminder of that story, why Paul would take this illustration out and use it, because the Judaizers are using Abraham as their spiritual father. In essence, they thought if you were related to Abraham, if you had a blood lineage to Abraham, you were in. You were good to go. So Paul takes it out and suggests something quite different, something radically different different with them. And I, let me just make this point. It's no different than 
anybody, anywhere. All around the world, people think because of what they do and what church they go to or where they grew up or what their traditions are that somehow that good pile now is bigger than their bad pile, right? Isn't that true? I grew up in a, in a Christian home. My dad is an evangelical pastor. I, I don't know if I ever in rational thought thought this sentence out, but I lived it. I lived this. Oh, of course. Of, co- of course. I don't have to wrestle with truth. I don't have to ask if it's mine. I don't have to see if it's different between him and me. I don't have to ask any questions. It's just kind of absorbed. You grow up in it, you get it on you. Right? But you know it's not true. There are people who walk in here all the time. Well, I grew up in a Baptist home, or my dad's a Presbyterian, or the Catholic Church, or whatever, whatever. And it's Jesus plus their tradition. Whatever it is, they've added something to just Jesus alone for a sinner like me. And I want you to know, Paul is addressing that with these Judaizers and with these Galatians. I don't care if it's the God of the Old Testament. It was never intended to get you to God. It was a mirror, not a ladder. The law wasn't supposed to show you um, how you could fix your steps and adjust your movements and become more right. And God would suddenly go, oh, never mind, you're good to go. The law exposed your inability, just like every religion does. So for us who are sitting here, I have to think about this all the time. I know there are students in here, and I think specifically about like junior high and high school students who just simply because the environment you're growing up in are making a mistake not to wrestle with, is it real in your own life? Is it real in your own heart? Is it true? Do you see yourself in need? Are you the sinner the Bible says you are, or do you struggle with that? Do you think that the grace of God through Christ alone, the the finished work of Christ on the cross needs to apply to your story or are you kind of waiting to see what other options out there? You're not saved because of who your mom and dad are. You understand? This is so sad. I'm going to tell you this story. I I used to do uh, student ministry for a lot of years. We'd go to camps. We'd have a wonderful time. God would really move. Kids would get saved. And there are some parents out there who are so delusional. It's ridiculous. But... um, they would get mad at me when their kids came home professing faith in Christ because they were so convinced they already were. They were mad. My Johnny got saved at three. I know he did. Yeah, but he's saying he wasn't. He's saying he believes now. And they would be mad. There's something jacked up about that, right? Really messed up. I can't quite put my finger on it, but that doesn't sound right. Anyway, that's a struggle we all have. Remember, the Judaizers were selling to Jesus plus theology. They were, in essence, saying, who's your daddy? Are you connected to Abraham? Because if you're connected to Abraham, you're okay. But Paul asks a whole different question. He asks this question, who's your mama? It doesn't matter that you're connected to Abraham. Let's use Sarah and Hagar as an illustrative uh, discussion of grace alone. So that's where he brings this theology from um, this Old Testament truth and story. Real story, real facts, real people uh, found here in verse 21 through 31. So let me just read it for us, um, and then we'll just make some points about this analogy. And then I've got three walkaways. So what's for you this morning? Here's Here's the story. Verse 21. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a promise. These things may be taken figuratively, for the women represent two covenants, 
One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are, who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she's our mother. For it is written, be glad, O barren woman who bears no children. Break forth and cry aloud, you who have no labor pains, because more are the children of a desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers of Isaac, are children of promise. At, the, at that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It's the same now. But what does the Scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will get, never share in the inheritance of the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Here's the, here's the gist of the story. One father, two mothers, two sons. One son born in the ordinary way, one son born as a result of a promise. And here's Paul's illustrative issue. Here's what he's trying to say. Here's the, here's the figurative part of this. Sarah represents grace, right? Hagar represents law. Sarah represents um, someone who, who, by trusting in God alone for salvation, receives what they don't deserve, mercy. And, and Hagar represents trying to work your way there, work your way to salvation, Isaac represents faith. Ishmael represents works. So let me just give you this quick snapshot on Ishmael and quick snapshot on Isaac. But Ishmael represents this this phrase, born in the natural way. It represents our story. In fact, church, listen, it represents every person's story. We're sort of like spiritual Ishmaels before Christ, every one of us. We're born the natural way, natural way in sin, broken messed up in our thinking, in our processes, unable to fix it. Uh, what does Isaiah tell us? That our best deeds compared to the holy standard of God is like filthy rags to him, right? You can't get there on your own. The Bible says in Ephesians, you're dead in your transgressions and sins. You're blind and unresponsive. There's nothing you can do. We're all born kind of like Ishmael's, right? We're born enslaved to sin, chained to it. You can't do anything about it. You can't adjust a few things. You can't learn a few things. Your spiritual condition is so great, so grand, so unbelievable that God has to leave heaven, take on flesh, dive into time and space, and take your heart of stone and transform it to flesh so that it can beat for him, apart from which no man can see the Father. It can't happen. Every person who ever lived needs God to do a supernatural work of transformation so that we'll say, I love you. I follow you. I believe in you. There's no hope. We're all Ishmael's. We're all stuck in that position unless God moves. And there's this other illustration, right? Sarah and her child Isaac represent what it's like to have this promise given and promise kept. God makes a promise to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. Yeah, right. I'm 99 years old. My problem's too great. Not for God. You could be sitting here today going, wait a minute. Are you, are you telling me that somehow my sin isn't beyond his reach? You have no idea what I've done. You don't know what I do. It doesn't matter. There isn't a sin on the planet other than absolute refusal to believe that's beyond the capability of God's grace to reach. So let's say you have, you're just a train wreck. Let's say that's your story. The grace of God reaches you. He's, he's offering you forgiveness He's offering you mercy, what you don't deserve. He's, he's willing to take your sin and bury it 
so it will be remembered no more, Psalm 103 says. As far as the east is from the west, so far he's removed our transgressions from us. That's how God will see us if we place our faith and trust in his promise to deliver. Just like Abraham and Sarah had to believe and it was credited as righteousness, amen, that's how it took place for them. So you see Paul's argument. He's taking this Old Testament story, this real story of real people, real kids, real mothers, and saying it's just like that spiritually. We're all Ishmael's, and we need God to, to work in our lives to make us his promised child. Hagar and, and Sarah, he brings up two covenants. And let me just touch on this, and we don't want to spend too long there in verse 25. But, but Hagar represents the law. He mentions Mount Sinai outside the promised land, some 200 miles from the promised land. It's where God gave the law. Whatever man could do outside of the presence of God, that's what you got with Hagar. Slavery can't fix it. You're in sin. And then you have this other covenant. And the covenant is with Sarah. It's called freedom. It's called mercy to sinners. He talks about a new Jerusalem. Um, In contrast to Jerusalem of the present day that was striving to fix their own issues, the new Jerusalem is full of freed sinners who've been freed by the saving work of Jesus Christ. Freedom. Freedom. A new heaven a place where the people of God belong. And so Paul finishes this section with with an obvious conclusion. Law and grace can't go together. Right? And that's what the Judaizers had done. They had taken Jesus, added the law. Paul's whole argument is what happened to Ishmael when, when the real promised son was born? What happened? What happened to him? Out. Gone. Can't be here. Law and grace don't live together. They don't live together. They can't exist together. God won't have it together. Ishmael had to go. The law has no place here either. It's got to go. Amen? So that's why, guys, in our, in our flesh, in this, you know, human part of us, we got, we got problems we continually deal with. And this kind of gets me into my three little observation walkaways, okay? Old habits die hard. We would prefer in our flesh religion. We would prefer work. If somehow God just created a list, he said, listen, get, get close, get a C. Just, just get a C. And we all got it. We would work our tail off for it. We prefer it that way. We want to measure ourselves based other, on other people. We want to have good days and avoid the bad days. And we want all that stuff to feel better about our position and our condition, don't we? That's in our flesh. Just like the Galatians had heard of grace and heard of freedom and mercy in Christ alone, they knew the gospel, and it wasn't a blend of Jesus plus anything. And yet, given an opportunity by a bunch of Gentiles who had no law, what did they do when they first got the shot? They picked up a bunch of legalism saying, well, maybe that'll help. Just so you know, church, it's in every one of us. We would rather our kids performed. We would rather we performed. We kind of got this law part of us in us. And old habits die hard, so we got to fight against that. That's why this series is so awesome. Every week, it's the same punchline. Every week. That's no mystery. God wants you to get it. Grace is that good. Grace is that great. Grace is that permanent. Grace is all we've got. So old habits die hard. Here's the second one. Might seem a little bit detached, but let me make it clear. Ministry is about people. I know a lot of you, and I know a lot of you are in ministry. And what I mean by that is not like vocationally. You're pouring your life out into others. 
whether it's your kids or whether it's, whether it's your husband or wife or whether it's some small group or young marriage, this or whatever, you're involved in it. And it's, it needs to be said, ministry is about people. Here the Judaizers in verse 17 were zealous about themselves. They were doing religious activity, ministry, but the end run was them, right? They were wooing this group of people so that they could have them on a wall to say, look at my plaque of success and achievement. I need this stuff. And I think it's a good thing to remind ourselves because ministry is about people. It's not about you. It's not even about getting a task done. Sometimes I walk around campus and I watch some of you doing tasks and you're so driven that you forget it's about people because you're doing a task and it's about, it's about others. It's not about the vision, it's about people. And, and I'm gonna use a kind of a, maybe a strange illustration, but I get a chance to sit in rooms with pastors and church planners and young wannabe church planners and, and what seems to be said too much, and I hope it's just an innocent mistake, but we talk a lot about gifts and we talk a lot about visions and leadership. We don't talk a lot about people. And, and that, that kind of bugs me because no matter what, it's about people. It always is. I don't really care about you getting your gift um, expressed. Uh, I don't really care about how much of your vision you get to see. I care about how many people you touch. Paul, if anybody could say, I'm a leader, I don't have time for those mundane things. Paul could say he doesn't qualify. He's got other bigger fish to fry, but he's in there saying, it's about people. I'm zealous for you. I'm going to keep coming. I'm committed to you until Christ is formed in you people. One last thing, okay? And this is the evangelistic part of, of the application. I know in this room and in the conference center, there's a, there's a few unbelievers, maybe more than a few, maybe there's a bunch. Maybe there's some church attenders or compliant husbands or compliant wives or compliant children, whatever. You're in the routine of having to perform in order to survive in your environment, right? You're invited, you come. But if you did an own assessment of your life and you would say, okay, where do I stand with my Feelings about Christ and relationship to Christ, you would end up saying, I know him, but I don't, I, I know about him, but I don't know him. Like the distance between assent and my heart are just huge and I can't get there. I don't know if I buy it and believe it. Well, I, you need to answer the question that Paul asked the Galatians. Like which one of these examples are you gonna follow? Who's your mama? Who, who, who is this gonna be? Is it, is, Sarah represents God's provision for your search. God's provision for your loneliness, God's position, his, his um, love for your lostness and your hurts, his provision for all of your longings are met in Christ alone, or are you simply going to just manage by inventing a version of effort, whatever it is, maybe it's not church, maybe it's not that kind of thing, but it's your own version, and think that it'll work out in the end. I got to tell you. Just like Paul is telling the Galatians, it doesn't. Your sin, my sin, man's sin is too great for man to fix. It is. So receive what God alone can do. Receive grace and mercy by faith in Christ alone. All you have to do right now, if you're an unbeliever and you're hearing me right now, all you have to do is profess out loud that he is Lord. You agree with him about your sin and receive the salvation that is free. That's all you gotta do. Watch him transform you. And by the way, if you do that, he's done something in here. (laughs) 
He just has. Before we get to worship, before we take communion together, can we pause for a second and just ask God for a couple of things? One is to confront the legalist in all of us. Two, for those who I was talking to at the last point, that they would be drawn um, by his mercy into faith. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for a reminder um, about what ministry is, what the gospel is, what the, um, what the man-made efforts can't do. Thank you for uh, another glimpse, another look at the cross of Christ, the provision for sinners like us. Father, thank you that um, the work that you've started, that you uh, promised to do, that you're continuing to do until we are transformed in the image of Christ. We praise you and we love you in Christ's name. Amen.